0: Beginning in verse 45. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side to Bethsaida, while he himself was sending the crowd away. After bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to pray. When it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. Seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, at about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them. Walking on the sea, and he intended to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke with them and said to them, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Then he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped, and they were utterly astonished, for they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. Let's pray once more. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you have given your word. Your word that has the power of you unto salvation. I thank you that you have preserved it so that we would have it before this morning and that we have the opportunity to sit together and worship this morning under your word under the authority that it carries. And we ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would apply this word to our lives this morning. And we pray this again in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. In the year 1991, the state of Michigan assisted over 830 motorists across its Mackinac Bridge. People would begin to travel across the bridge and halfway through they would become scared. They would become fearful. And so Michigan created what was called the Timid Motorist Program. And people would literally stand on the side of the road and get into the car to help the passengers across the rest of the bridge. In the same year, in 1991, the state of Maryland helped over a thousand motorists across its Chesapeake Bay Bridge like those motorists who feared the bridges, like those motorists who would get out across the bridge just a little bit and would begin to fear what was ahead of them. And they needed someone to get into the car with them and help them along the way. The disciples are here in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. They're in the middle of a sea that they had traversed many, many times. These were career fishermen, career boatsmen they had spent their entire lives not simply on the water, but on this body of water. And on this night, and this particular occasion, as the disciples would make their way across the Sea of Galilee, they became fearful. They became timid. What was ahead of them seemed bigger than the God they served. And so they desperately needed for Christ to come and save them. For Christ to come and remind them of who He is. And I don't know where you might be this morning. But maybe you find yourself in the midst of one of these storms. Maybe you find yourself in the midst of a circumstance in your life. That seems to be bigger than the God you serve. But I want for us from this text this morning to be reminded. That the God that we serve is far bigger than any circumstance that we could ever face. That the God we serve is faithful to sustain us. And I want to look at just two points in this passage. First is the deity of Christ. The deity or the godness of Christ. And second, the disciples of Christ. If we were to do a survey through the book of Mark, what we would find is that the main theme of Mark's gospel is this whole issue of who is Jesus. Again and again, Mark brings up this question in his 16 chapter gospel. Who is Jesus? Now, if you know who Mark is writing to, then this makes sense. Mark is writing primarily to Roman Gentiles. He's writing to people who didn't grow up in church. He's writing to people who do not otherwise know who Jesus is. They never heard of who the Messiah might be. And they certainly didn't know who the Messiah was. And so Mark is writing his gospel his record of the life of Jesus to people who otherwise knew nothing of Jesus. And he continually answers this question, who is Jesus? In Mark chapter 1 verse 1, Mark opens his gospel by saying the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so Mark in his very opening statement is planting his stake and saying, here is who Jesus is. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is God incarnate, God with us, Emmanuel. Mark is quick to get to the point. He wants his readers to understand that he is writing to them about Jesus Christ. He is writing to them about the person and work of God in Christ. Charles Spurgeon, who is known as the Prince of Preachers, and writing and teaching fellow preachers on how to preach, he said, I take my text and make a beeline to the cross. The Apostle Paul, writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, on his own pastoral ministry methods on how he would go about preaching the gospel, writes, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now, this does not mean that we forsake every other thing that's in the Bible. Obviously, the Bible talks about marriage. It talks about parenting. It talks about how to deal with certain issues that come up in life. But all of that, every single book, every single chapter, every single verse of Scripture serves to point us to one. All of it serves to point us to Jesus Christ. So if you're here for some time, and as long as I'm permitted to fill this pulpit here and to preach this word, I want you to be assured that I will preach nothing else other than the name of Jesus Christ. Because Acts chapter 4 verse 12 tells us that there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved but the name of Jesus Christ. And so to preach any other name would be impotent. To preach any other name would be powerless to save. And so as long as I'm permitted to serve this church, I want you to know that I will preach the Lord Jesus Christ. Because He alone has the power to save. And Mark understood this. Mark understood the importance Of letting people know who Jesus is. His entire gospel again answers the question, who is Jesus? Mark wants us to understand. And he doesn't waste time getting there. Mark understands how immediately necessary it is for people to know the gospel. We see that here in Mark chapter 6 beginning in verse 45. He uses this word in verse 45, immediately. Or if you're reading from the King James Version, it may say straightway or straight away. This word comes from the same Greek word, from the word eutheos. It literally means at once, immediately, moving forward. And when we see these indicators, these words like immediately and now and then, these words are chronological in a sense. They're telling us the way in which the story unfolded. They're telling, them, telling us the chronology of how things happen. But they're not just chronological. They're also theological. They're also reminding us of how urgent the gospel is. And what Mark is doing here is using a word immediately. He's getting to the point. He's not dancing around the point. He's getting directly to the point of the gospel. Immediately. And look at the word that follows immediately. Verse 45. Immediately. Jesus. Mark understands that the most immediate thing that you and I have need of this morning is not anything that this world has to offer. The most immediate thing that you and I have need of this morning is to be reminded of who Jesus is. To be reminded of how good He is. To be reminded of His work on our behalf. And so Mark here writes this word immediately. And in Mark's 16 chapter gospel. He would use this word, this Greek word Euthaus," he uses it 39 times, almost three times, on average, per chapter. And Mark is using this, not because his book is lacking substance, but because his book gets to the point. And my prayer here that this is that this church would get to the point, that this church would have always as its focus. Jesus Christ would always have as its focus the love of God for others. And Mark says immediately in verse 45, he understands that the sinner is not promised tomorrow. And so he who slumbers while the gospel offer is extended to him may be slumbering on the brink of woe. He may find himself to wake up in hell. And Mark understands that the gospel is not for later. The gospel is for now. The gospel is something that people immediately need to know. The mother who is exhausted and who needs encouragement and strength to get through the day may not have enough strength within her to get through even just today. And so she doesn't need for someone to put the gospel off until tomorrow. She needs to be reminded today of the promises of God. The father who has been all but absent because all of his duties outside of the home, all of his work, all of his duties that require much of him have drained him. And by the time that he gets home, he has nothing to give. That father does not need to have the gospel put off until a later time. He needs the gospel now. The person who finds themselves at the end of their life, who finds their strength fading from them, does not need the gospel put off. They need to be reminded of Christ now. And Mark understands this. And as he continues his record of what took place here on the Galilean seashore, we see that Jesus sends his disciples across the sea to Bethsaida. It says, look at with me in verse 45. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him, to the other side to Bethsaida, while he himself was sending the crowd away. Now, this word made, it indicates that there was some arguing going on there. The disciples were probably pushing back, saying, we don't want to leave. We don't want to go. But Jesus made them. And there may be something that God is calling you to do that you're saying, I don't think I'm ready for that. I don't think that now is the time for that. But Jesus makes his disciples. He tells them that his command ought to be their duty. And so Jesus makes His disciples get into the boat and go ahead of Him to the other side of, to the other side of Bethsaida while He Himself was sending the crowd away. Now there are two things that I want you to notice in verses 45 and 46. First, is that Jesus sends the disciples ahead of Him. In order for someone to go ahead, then another one must be coming behind. If my wife and I are walking into the store and she's walking ahead of me, then the expectation is not that I just let her go off, but that I'm walking behind her. And Jesus here sends the disciples ahead of him. He said, go to Bethsaida and I'll meet you there is essentially what the text is telling us. And so the disciples knew that they were going to the other side of Bethsaida. They understood that Jesus was telling them, you will make it there. You'll get there. Whatever you face along the way, you'll make it there because I'm sending you ahead. And then in verse 46, it says, after bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to pray. Now, this word in the Greek for farewell is not a is not a final goodbye. It's a see you later. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, I'll see you again. I'll see you soon. And if the disciples had been paying attention to Jesus all along the way. Then they would know that his words are covenantal words. That his words are always yes and amen. That the words of Jesus are always promises to us. That Jesus never fails us as so many in our lives often do. And so when Jesus says go ahead. Go to the other side. You'll get there and I'll meet you. They should have believed him. They should have believed him and trusted him. That whatever life may throw my way. Whatever this sea has in store for me, Jesus has promised that I'll make it to the other side. And then in verse 46, he says, I'll see you later. I'll see you again. And the disciples should have taken that as a covenant. They should have taken that as a promise that Jesus is promising them that they will make it to the other side. Beloved, how many promises of God have you taken for granted? How often have the truths he offers in his word slipped from your mind when facing trials and turmoils? When the diagnosis is that you have cancer or that you have heart failure or that there's some sickness within your body that the doctors don't know how to heal. Do you remember that God promises us in Isaiah 40 to strengthen us? When you lose your job and you're not sure where the next paycheck is going to come from. Do you remember that in Psalm 55, God tells us that he will sustain us and supply us with every need? Or what about when it feels like you're all alone? When you feel depressed, when you feel at the bottom of the barrel and you feel that no one else understands what you're going through. Do you remember what Hebrews 4 says? That Jesus is not one who is unable to sympathize with us, but one who has been tempted in every way and yet without sin. And so we can go to him boldly approaching the throne of grace. We're told in Numbers 23, 19, that God is not a man that he should lie, nor son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? In Psalm 12, 6 and 7. We're told that the words of the Lord are pure words as silver tried in a furnace on the earth refined seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will preserve him from this generation forever. And Titus chapter 1 verses 1 through 3. We're told that God is trustworthy. Paul, in opening his letter to Titus, says, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. And the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested even his word and the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God, our Savior. And so we're told over and over again throughout Scripture that Jesus is one who can be trusted. No matter what you're facing this morning. No matter what struggles or sufferings, no matter what trials or turmoils, no matter what griefs or or no matter what you are facing this morning. You can trust that the promises that we find in the word of God are yes and amen. When God promises to sustain you, he will sustain you. When God promises to supply your every need, he will supply your every need. When God promises to meet you in what seems to be the bottom, he will meet you in what seems to be the bottom. And so whatever you are facing this morning, brothers and sisters, be reminded that Jesus is trustworthy, that Jesus is a friend who is faithful and true, that Jesus never leaves you to fend fend for yourself. We talked about this morning in Sunday school about our own weaknesses. We need to be aware of how weak we are. And in our awareness of how weak we are, we can also be encouraged in how strong our God is. Look at verses 47 through 48. It says, when it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea. And he was alone on the land, seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them. At about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea, And he intended to pass by them. Jesus here is modeling for us what prayer ought to look like. In verse 47, or in verse 46, it says that he bids them farewell and then he leaves for the mountain to pray. Jesus leaves all the crowd. He leaves all the commotion and he goes to the mountain and he prays. I'm convinced that what was once a sweet hour of prayer is often today sweet seconds of prayer. We need to be a prayerful people if we are to be a church that is on fire for the Lord, if we are to be a church that is powerful, if we are to be a church that moves forward with the gospel and reaches the community around us, if we are to be a church that is built up in Christ, then we must be a prayerful church. A church that does not pray is a church that is dying. And Jesus here is modeling for us what prayer should look like. There are times in our lives that we need to get alone with God. We need to get alone with God and cry out to Him and plead with Him that He would move in our life. And Jesus here is removing himself from the crowds in order to do that. And what happens here, as Jesus is on the mountain, as Jesus is far away, he removes himself from the crowd. And the crowd is on the seashore. So what probably would have happened is that he would have walked away from the seashore. He would have walked farther away, stepping farther back from the sea. The disciples get into the boat and they begin to travel across the sea. As Jesus is up on the mountain and the disciples are in the middle of the sea, look at verse 47. It says, when it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea. And if we were to take this literally, which I believe that we should, then Jesus is in, the or the disciples are in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee would be a very large sea. It wouldn't be a massive sea, but it would be a sea that was large enough for Jesus not to be able to see the disciples with blind eye. And this was a time before telescopes were invented. This was a time before binoculars were invented. And so Jesus, it says, is on the mountain and the disciples are in the middle of the sea. And it says in verse 48, notice this, it says, Seeing them, seeing the disciples straining at the oars. The disciples were struggling. The disciples were toiling in their rowing. They were straining at the oars. These career fishermen who had spent their entire lives on the water, who had spent their entire lives directing a boat, were here struggling. They had met a storm that had taken away from them all of what may have been pride within them. They understood at that exact moment that this storm could very well take their lives. And there are things in this life that we face that could take our lives. There are diseases, there are sicknesses, there are injuries that we face in this world that can take us out of the world. And the disciples understood that. The disciples understood that the storm that they were facing was one of those that maybe storms like this had taken lives of fishermen before. Maybe it had taken lives of boatsmen before. And the disciples understood that this was a severe storm and they were struggling, they were straining, they were toiling at what their task was. But it says here in verse 48 that Jesus, seeing the disciples. Now remember that Jesus is far away. Jesus is probably about four to five miles away from the disciples at this point. The Sea of Galilee is about 84 feet deep on average. And so the disciples are about four miles away. They're 84 feet above the bottom of the sea. And they're in the middle of a storm. And it says in verse forty-eight or 47 that it was evening. And so it was dark. It was dark. It was stormy. It was thundering. It was lightning. It would be very difficult for the disciples to even see in front of them. I've been driving in many storms that have been difficult to see five feet in front of me. And this was likely one of those storms that it was difficult for the disciples to even see five feet in front of them. But here, Jesus is over four miles away. And it says in verse 48, he saw them. How is it that Jesus sees the disciples? It is because Jesus is omniscient. Jesus is all knowing. There is nothing that you are facing in your life that Jesus does not see. There is nothing that you have ever faced. There is nothing that you are currently facing. And there is nothing that you ever will face that Jesus is not aware of. There is nothing that will ever take God by surprise. And so here Jesus sees the disciples. He sees them from miles away. And that should be an encouragement for us this morning, for Christians this morning. This should be an encouragement that whatever you and I are facing, God sees us. And it doesn't just leave it there. It doesn't just say he saw them straining at the oars and he turned a blind eye to it. He didn't just leave them out there. It says, verse 48, seeing them straining at the oars for the wind was against them. At about the fourth watch of the night, He came to them. Jesus went to the disciples. He came to them walking on the sea. Jesus will meet you in your hour of need. And Jesus knows when best to come to you. So if you're praying for God to break through, if you're praying that God would meet you in your time of need, and it feels as though God is showing up late. We can be reminded that God always shows up exactly on time. That God always shows up exactly when we need it the most. He sees us. He watches us. And He sees exactly when and where we need Him. And He will come to us just then. And again, remember that Jesus is four miles away. He's on the dry land. It's raining. The, the, the waters are raging. The winds are, are howling. And Jesus walks to them. He comes to them. How is it that Jesus could make it to the disciples? It's because the second point that I want to see on the deity of Christ is that Jesus is omnipresent. That Jesus is never far removed. That Jesus is found in all places at all times and perfectly so. That if there is a Christian in China right this morning who is being persecuted for reading their Bible, and you here this morning are struggling with some sickness within your body, if that Christian in China is praying to God, it does not mean that God is too stressed out or God is too strained to answer their prayer that He can't answer yours. God can answer your prayers. God has never run thin. God is all places at all times and perfectly so. And we're reminded this morning that there are some friends who may fail us. There are some loved ones who may show up too late. But Jesus is always on time. Jesus will never leave us on our own. He will always come to us exactly when we need Him. And it says here in verse 48, it says, He came to them walking on the sea. But notice what it says at the end of verse 48. And He intended to pass by them. Why would Jesus, seeing His disciples, seeing those whom He loved, seeing them struggling and straining, seeing them in the midst of a storm which could very well kill them, why would He walk by them? Why would He not go to them? Turn with me to Exodus chapter 33. Because this exact same phrase is used. Exodus 33. And we'll look at verses 17 through 23. Says the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken. For you have found favor in my sight and I have known you by name. Then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. And so Moses is wanting to see the glory of God. He wants to see the goodness of God in front of him and in verse 19, it says, "And the Lord said, "I myself will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion." But he said, "You cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live." Then the Lord said, "Behold. There is a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock, and it will come about while my glory is passing by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So going back to Mark chapter 6, we see this exact same phrase that Jesus intended to pass by. The disciples in other words what Jesus is doing here is he is showing them his glory he is showing them that he is God he has left them for a while in the middle of the storm he sent them into the storm and he leaves them in it and then he comes to them and he comes to them for this purpose to show them that he is God he comes by them to show them his glory So when God comes to save us out of our sin, when God comes to save us in the midst of trials, the purpose is always that we would see how good He is. The purpose is always that God would be glorified in it. And so if you have been saved from your sins, if you have been bought by the redeeming blood of Jesus Christ, if you have been saved out of the pit of hell, if you have been brought into the fold of grace, you have been brought there so that God would receive all the glory for your salvation. You have been saved to give glory to God. And Jesus here saves the disciples out of their turmoils, out of their trial that they were facing. Not just so that he would save them out of it. Certainly Romans 8.28 tells us that all things work together for the good of those who love him. And so God does things for our good. God does things so that we would be built up and encouraged. But that is not the end goal. Our good is not the ultimate end the ultimate end of everything that God does in your life, the ultimate end of everything that God does in my life, is so that He would be glorified. God wants us to understand that He is glorious and worthy of our worship. And so here, He intended to pass by them so that the disciples would see His glory. Again and again, Mark is pointing us to the reality that Jesus is God. Jesus is the Son of God. He is God with us. Jesus has the power to do far more abundantly than all that we could ask or think. You may think that your trials are too big. But God is much bigger than any trial that we face. Jerry Bridges in his book, Trusting God Even When Life Hurts, writes, God has not walked away from the day-to-day control of His creation. Certainly, he has established physical laws by which he governs the forces of nature. But those laws continuously operate according to his sovereign will. A Christian TV meteorologist has determined that there are over 1,400 references to weather terminology in the Bible. Many of these references attribute the outworking of weather directly to the hand of God. And so God is in control even over the storms God is in control over every single dust mote of this world. There is not a single inch of this earth that is outside of the scope of Christ's rule and reign. And since you and I find ourselves here on the face of planet earth, on the place where it is said in Psalm 110 that this place is the footstool of the throne of Jesus, since we find ourselves here on the face of planet earth, we find ourselves somewhere that God is ruling and reigning. God rules and reigns over every inch of creation. And He is not far removed from you. The second point that I want to look at very quickly is the disciples of Christ. Look at verse 49. Verses 49 through 52. It says, But when they saw Him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost and cried out, For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke with them and said to them, Take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. There are certain storms that we face in this life that make it difficult to even see the hand of God when he moves. There are certain things that we will face that make it difficult for us to see beyond the storm. It shadows and and covers up everything else that we should see and so when we when we see God move we sometimes fail to even recognize that it's him moving. And the disciples here failed to even recognize that it was Jesus coming to them. But notice what he says to them. It says in verse 50, "For they all saw him and were terrified, but immediately he spoke with them and said to them, take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid." The phrase that Jesus uses here when he says it is I is literally I am. Jesus is telling them, take courage. God is with you. This morning, I want us to be reminded that we can take courage, that we can be encouraged, that we can be built up, whatever we are facing, because God is with us. God is not far from us. There is nothing too big for our God to handle. Look with me at verses 51 and 52. After encouraging them, after telling them, take courage It is his eye. Do not be afraid, it says in verse 51, Then he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped, and they were utterly astonished. For they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. As the disciples see God moving here, they're astonished by it. When is the last time that you saw God moving in your life and you were astonished by it? You were amazed by by what God had done. When I think back over my life, when I think back over all of the sins that I've committed against Him, I have earned hell. I deserve His wrath. And yet, He has saved me. Yet, God sent His only Son to come and bear the weight of sin that I deserve to bear upon my own shoulders. And when I think of that, when I think that I deserve an eternity in hell under the wrath of God, and I think that God has saved me in Christ, I'm amazed by it. It truly is amazing grace. And here the disciples are astonished by the way that God has moved. Maybe you find yourself in the midst of a storm this morning. Maybe you find yourself questioning, why hasn't God moved yet? But when God moves, my prayer for you is that you would be astonished by it. That you would be absolutely amazed. And you would say, God moved exactly when God knew that it was time for him to move. He's not late. But he's right on time. I'm reminded of the old Southern Gospel song, Sometimes It Takes a Mountain. It says, Sometimes it takes a mountain. Sometimes a troubled sea. Sometimes it takes a desert to get a hold of me. Your love speaking to God is so much stronger than whatever troubles me. Sometimes it takes a mountain to trust you and believe. So I don't know what kind of storm you may be facing, but I want to encourage you to look to Christ in the midst of it all, because sometimes that mountain, sometimes that storm that you're facing, sometimes the purpose of it is to remind you that the things of this earth can never satisfy, that your strength can never be enough. And so it's it's something that is to cause us to remember that we must always trust in Christ. And He will meet us exactly where we are and exactly when we need Him. I pray this morning that you would make your life's anthem the old hymn, I will trust Him. I will trust Him. Trust Him every day. I will trust Him. Do you trust Jesus this morning? If you don't trust Jesus this morning and you're continually trusting in yourself, I would plead with you. Stop trusting in that which is impotent to save. But turn your eyes upon Jesus, who has the power to save, not only from death, hell, and the grave, but has the power to save you from any storm that life may throw your way. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have given us your word. I thank you for the power that is in your Son, Jesus Christ. That He has the power to save. Father, I ask this morning that if there's anyone who is hurting, anyone who is struggling this morning, anyone who feels the way that I feel this morning, that life is troublesome, that life is trying, that life is difficult, Would you encourage them this morning, even as you encourage me, that we can look to your son and find strength to sustain us. In Christ's name, amen.